How many of you ever wish you had more contentment? Anybody ever wish that contentment was a gift instead of a fruit? You know why? Because gifts are sown, fruit is grown. But I'm going to talk to you about contentment today. And I really do believe that there is power. The Word says there is power in being a content person. And I'm going to preach some contentment onto you. And uh, see what the Bible says. Now, we're going to jump into a story. One of my favorite stories about Jesus going to a well one day to get some water. He met a woman there and he talked about something called living water. And I'm going to read just this one verse, guys, and then I'm going to, I'm going to close it because the rest of it I'll, I'll quote in the message. But he, he says to this woman, if you would just ask of me, then I will give you living water. And if you get the living water, you're never going to thirst again. Well, that sounds like better than Gatorade, the thirst quencher. Amen? So now the woman hears this. She hears this strange living water statement. And the claim that on face value seems pretty absurd, once you drink it, you're never going to thirst again. Well, the woman, with her curiosity peaked, says to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. That would solve all my problems if I didn't have to keep coming here. You just gave me water and I never thirsted again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to the Word of God. And Lord, that you will help us to lay hold of the truth of contentment, the power of contentment in our life. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Will you breathe a prayer? Say, Lord, teach me to be content. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, be content. He won't go long. (laughs) Now, this is the story of a woman who unexpectedly encounters Jesus in her normal, everyday, work-a-day world. I have found that often when God deals with me, it says I'm going, going through just the normal motions of life. And as I'm just going through the same old, same old, the motions of life, God speaks to me, teaches me something. I sense his presence. And here's this woman. She gets up like so many other days and, and uh, walks out with a pail, heads to the well, and a very unusual man meets her at the well. You know, I've often wondered what it was like to meet Jesus in person because Isaiah lets us know he was not a looker. He was not a handsome man. He didn't look like these pictures we see painted of him, the long blonde hair and the blue eyes and the Gentile nose and kind of like a glorified surfer. Jesus was very Jewish looking because he was Jewish. And Isaiah said there's no beauty that we would desire him. He did not have natural attractiveness, yet there was something extremely compelling about the person of Jesus Christ. He drew you like a magnet. I've often thought it had to be his eyes because he had never known a sin. He had to have the purest eyes you'd ever looked into. And when Jesus looked at you, he looked through you. He looked right through you. He read your mail immediately. This woman comes to the well and they strike up a conversation. Jews weren't supposed to be talking to Gentiles. So Jesus immediately broke rank with his Jewish brethren and began to talk to this woman. And as they're talking... He says, uh, let me tell you something about what I've got to offer you. I've got something called living water. If you knew who you were talking to, 
you would ask me for the living water, and if I gave you the living water that I've got access to and that I have the power to give to you, you would never thirst again. She's very curious now. She says, give me this living water. Well, mark you, Jesus had already read her mail. He knew her before he ever met her. And he said, you want the living water? Then we're going to have to deal with some stuff. So she says, yeah, 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 I want that living water. He says, okay, go get your husband. Uh-oh. He immediately hit a nerve. Matter of fact, he hit the rawest nerve he could have struck. She said, well, I have no husband. And I hear a pathos in that. I hear a sorrow in that statement. I don't think she said it matter-of-factly. You know, I don't have a husband. You know, I'm a single woman. No, she said it with some sorrow, some sadness. Because you see, men had been the disappointment, the disillusionment of her life. Relationship after relationship after relationship had failed. When she said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, you're telling me the truth, but you haven't told me the whole truth. Here's the whole truth. You've had five husbands. And the one you're shacking up with now is not your husband. See, she didn't tell him she was shacking up. But he knew she was. She tried to get by with, well, I don't have a husband. She was skirting the issue. But you see, for Jesus to get us the living water, we got to deal with the sin in our life. We're going to have to deal with the sin in our life. And Jesus knew it, so he went right to the main issue of this woman's life. He said, yeah, I know you don't have a husband, but I also know that you're shacking up. You're living with a man and you're not married. And I also know that you've had five husbands. And the one you're with now, he's not your husband. I hear him saying there, you tried marriage over and over and over again. And so disappointed are you with marriage after five men, you've decided marriage is not for me. I'm just going to shack up. It's amazing to me how many people in our day believe you can shack up and not live in sin. When the Bible talks about a little thing called fornication, which means to be in sexual relationship with a person when you're not married, but that's another issue, and I won't bore you with that. Now, this woman was living in fornication, and she had had failed relationship after failed relationship after failed, and Jesus knew, we're going to have to deal with this if you want the living water, I have no husband. You've had five. And let me tell you something, lady. You've had man after man after man, relationship after relationship after relationship. And what you need to understand is you didn't need all those worldly men in your life, but the man you really need is standing in front of you. You need the God-man who is standing in front of you because what I can do for you, no man you've ever known can do. I can forgive your sins, I can set you on the path to life, and I can give you a drink of the Holy Spirit's water that will truly satisfy your soul because you've been looking in all the wrong places. You need me. And folks, can I tell you that I really do believe that Jesus had to deal with this for this woman to get to the place where she could run into the town and she became the first New Testament evangelist. She ran into the town and started preaching her heart out, saying, come and see a real man. 
A man who has told me everything I ever did. Now, when I look at this woman, I see people, I see so many people in our culture today, and probably many of you sitting here, and many listening by radio, listen carefully to me, this woman, because she had a hunger in her life. She had a need in her life. She didn't really know what it was. I have always believed that when somebody turns to drugs or alcohol or constant relationship after relationship, They're on the hunt for something only God can give. It's it's, it's an inner hunger. They don't know how to explain it. They don't know how to verbalize what they're looking for. But they will never be satisfied until they rest in Him and experience the living waters Jesus told this woman about. See, this need in her, this hunger, this search, this quest... I really do believe it had created sort of an affliction of sorts inside of her. See, I don't believe her her basic issue was a man problem at all. I don't believe that it was a lust problem. I don't believe that she got some rush out of walking down the aisle and getting married and being the woman of the day like that. I don't believe that was the deal at all. I do believe this is what was wrong. This woman had bought into a myth. It's been called the myth of the greener grass. I want you to listen carefully to me now. I, I believe when you're snorting it, smoking it, drinking it, shooting it, you're looking for something that you don't fully understand. You're looking for something only God can give you. And you are believing that if I just do this or just go there or just experience this or just experience that, it looks better to me on the other side of the fence. See, people that struggle with the myth of the greener grass are convinced that things would be better over yonder on the other side of the fence. They're always looking to the next relationship, next experience, next place, next church, next man, next woman. If only this were different, if only that were different, then I'd be happy, then I would be, then I would be content. Everybody wants to be content. Where you just wake up and say, praise God, I'm content. Somebody said, if the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, you can bet the water bill is higher. And somebody's having to pay it. See, the woman at the well believed this myth when it came to relationships. She believed, well, this guy didn't work out, it'll be the next one. And then that one didn't work out. Well, it'll be the next one. Well, I've learned a lot. These three marriages, it'll be number four. Well, I'm really about to get there with number five. Finally, she just said, you know, me and marriage, we don't mix. She could have written that old country song herself. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. Searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. It'll be this one, it'll be this one, it'll be this one, it'll be this one. Never content, never settled, never resting, never comfortable, never happy. Others believe this myth when it comes to things, stuff, possessions, or even your looks in our day. Do you know that Michael Jackson received some 30 to 40 plastic surgeries on his face alone in his brief life? The multi-million dollar, billion dollar man who seemed to have it all 
deeply troubled, deeply disturbed, was looking for something in that next surgery, something on the other side of that next surgery, something on the other, other side of that next correction on this or that or the other, looking for that elusive reflection in the mirror where he would finally say, I'm content, I'm happy with this. What he did to his face was a reflection of his soul. He could not find contentment, though he seemed to have the world by the tail. Heidi Montag, already a beautiful 23-year-old young lady, in one day received 10 plastic surgeries. Her reason when she was interviewed, she said, we all want to feel attractive. Heidi, something is wrong. See, when you're always trying to fix this out here, it's never right. It's never good enough. It's never, it's never satisfying. Something is wrong on the inside. We all want to feel attractive. Yeah, sure we do, but I'm not going under the knife ten, ten times to look like anybody. And you know, our nation is now seeing an epidemic of plastic surgery. Young people not happy with what God gave them. You look at them and you go, why in the world would you ever go get plastic surgery? You look fine. But no, it's that other side of the fence. It's that look. It's that money. It's that position. It is that person. It's that relationship. And you're never content. The myth of the greener grass produces an endless search for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, that mirage in the desert, that hope-for utopia that doesn't even really exist. What we need is what Jesus told this woman. If you would just let me give you the living water, you would never thirst again. Here's the way I interpret that. Your search will end. Your endless quest for the next relationship, the next thing to satisfy you, you will realize that once you've tasted of the living waters of the flowing Holy Spirit, the peace of God, the power of the Holy Ghost on your life, you will not thirst for those other things again. And, you know, let me just tell you that I, I am not saying that you should not try to better yourself, to improve your situation in life. I'm not saying that at all. I think sometimes you can be so content you get lazy and never do anything with your life. I'm not saying that at all. I encourage people, if you can go to school, if you can better your mind, better your skills, better your opportunities, strengthen your horizons, go do it. But that's not what we're talking about today. On the flip side, the Bible teaches Christians to learn to practice contentment. Discontented people are never happy and they're never joyful. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been around one? Have you ever been one? Are you one? If you're around somebody like that, you know exactly what it's like to be around somebody discontented because nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever good enough. And when you're discontented, no matter what you do, you're still stuck with feeling discontent. In England, there's a grave marker that says on it, she died for want of things. What an epitaph. She died for want of things. But right next to that one is another one that says, he died trying to give them to her. <laughs> See, because he was with a discontented person. And if you're discontented or you're around people that are discontented, it has a way of robbing you of your peace and your joy because there is power in being content. I want you to listen to me today. I came with a truth today. There is power in being content. Amen. Let me tell you what the Bible says about this myth. 
Here, here's part of the myth. Let me pop the bubble. Did you know that it's almost never as green in somebody else's life as it first appears? You know that the media is great at romanticizing a person's life or a couple's life, and you find out later that wasn't even true? Uh, how often do we find out some Hollywood couple uh, was romanticized by the media? You know, the, 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 the wonderful, perfect, happy couple, and then, boy, you just wait around for a while and you find out it wasn't that way at all. Remember Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston? When they were going to get married, it was like, oh, the prince and princess of Hollywood. Their fairy tale wedding cost one million cool dollars. Not counting the fireworks that were shot off at the close. Envious women all over America swooned. <gasps> Brad Pitt. Oh, just to be married to Brad Pitt. And men. Oh, if only I could be married to America's sweetheart, Jennifer Aniston. Oh, what a dream that would be. But you know the rest of the story. It died like a bad dream. Brad in an affair. Jennifer to this day unable to find the right man. Though she's beautiful, millions of dollars. Can't find the right man. Can't find a way to settle and be content. That story is repeated in Hollywood and around the world over and over every single day. Let me tell you a fact. More times than not, the key to happiness is not on the other side of the fence, no matter how good it looks. It is in learning to be content with where you are. I'm giving you something you would pay thousands of dollars to get from a psychologist or a counselor. This is free. Here we go. Let me save you some time and energy and heartache. Why does this even matter? Because you get in all kinds of trouble when you're discontent. You make terrible decisions when you're discontent. When you're discontent, walking around unhappy with everything in your life or, or major things in your life, and you're always grumbling and complaining, you are a target for the devil to tempt you to make the wrong decision. Settle for the wrong person. Settle for the wrong thing. Settle for the wrong place. When you're content... God can speak to you. When you're discontent, it's very difficult for you to hear God. The key to happiness is not what's over yonder. And I want to show you today that the key to happiness is in learning the art of being content. Now, it helped me to understand something about God. And you may not like what I'm going to tell you about God, but it's true nevertheless. Here it is. Are you ready? When you understand this about God, you learn to worship Him and be content. God's after character in your life more than your comfort. Your character is more important to God than your comfort. See, sometimes we run from things because our, we're not content with our lot in life, we, and we run, and we go to try to get something on the other side of the fence. And what we do is we run away from something God's trying to teach us. Something He's trying to work in us. Some character He's trying to form in us. Some deeper spirituality He's trying to create in us. We run from the potter's wheel. Well, it's greener over there. It's better over there. If only I had that over there. If you today, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have believed the sole purpose of Christianity is to make you happy, or comfortable, or to make life easy, then you believe a myth. 
the myth that Christianity is about your comfort. Christianity is not about your comfort or mine. Christianity will bring you peace. It'll bring you joy. You'll get peace with God, and when you get peace with God, you get the peace of God. It gives you joy, hope, a new future, a new nature. But walking with Christ, I'd be lying to you if I told you it was easy. It's not easy walking with Christ. It is not easy getting up every day and picking up that cross and crucifying your flesh and saying no to yourself and yes to Him and walking with Him. It is not easy. It's not, it's not cotton candy. It's not a joy ride. But it's good and it's worth it. And it's the challenge of your life. It'll bring you peace, it'll bring you joy, it'll bring you hope, but it'll also bring you challenges. And one of them is, hey, says God, your character is more important to me me than you sitting back in an easy chair being comfortable. Matter of fact, I came to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. Character, holiness, and faith are the very things that make the grass on our side of the fence rich and green. Do you know where real joy comes from in the Christian life? It comes from crucifying your flesh that gets you in all your trouble anyway, picking up that cross daily, and walking with Jesus and following Him. Saying, not my will, but yours be done. When you die to yourself, when you crucify your flesh, not fun, not having a good time, not enjoying life, your flesh, that lower nature, the tendency to walk in sin. When you crucify that and you pick up your cross every day and say, Lord, not my will, but yours. It's not my life. It's yours. It's not my body. It's yours. That's when the joy of the Lord bubbles up into everlasting life. That's when you experience the living water. <laughs> Amen. Hey. Then we don't like to hear this. Well, didn't I just get saved for God to bless me? Yeah, but not in some of the ways you thought. At one point in his life. Well, let me, let me just back up for a second real quick. Then here I am, and I'm looking at the other side of somebody else's I'm looking at somebody else's pasture, that sheep staring through the fence at somebody else's pasture, always looking over there, never content, never satisfied, never thanking God for what you have. Your conditions are not what you had hoped for. God has not done what you thought he was going to do. And and, and you're saying, Lord, there's got to be some change. Let me tell you what you ought to do instead. You ask God this question. What are you trying to teach me? right now in my now well god doesn't talk to me yes he does he's given you 66 books of talk he's given you a holy bible to talk to you he's given a spirit inside of you to talk to you and he will talk to you now here's paul let me go to paul for a minute brilliant apostle he sent out handkerchiefs without charging for them And people got healed. They picked up the handkerchief and demons came out. And they got healed. There was such a presence, such a tangible anointing on what this man touched. Yet one day he wakes up and something is wrong. Something is wrong with him physically. 
I have no issue any longer. I'm convinced it was his eyes. I know it's been a theological uh, uh, debate ever since he wrote the Bible or the, the letter where he talks about the thorn in the flesh, Second Corinthians, ever since he wrote it. Well, what was the thorn? Well, the thorn was this, that, and the other. There's no question in my mind it was his eyes. In Galatians, he tells the Galatian people, I know that when you met me, it was hard to look at my eyes. And when he wrote, he wrote with huge letters like he was very myopic. There's no question in my mind it was an eye issue. But he called it a thorn in the flesh. And it vexed him. And it troubled him. And it distracted him. And it hurt him. This is the guy that hands out the handkerchiefs and people get healed. So normally you're going to assume, well, he's going to heal me. So he, instead of going, well, you know, it's not fair that so-and-so can see well and I can't, and sitting around envying other people's pastures, he sought the Lord in his problem. And it says, I begged the Lord three times to take this away from me. And what happened? The Lord had a word for him in his trial and a purpose for the trial. The Lord spoke to him and said, Paul, it's not going to happen because I'm teaching you something. Here's what I'm teaching you. My grace is sufficient. And Paul, I want you to understand that when you're weak, that's when I'm the strongest. And Paul, I've been teaching you not to lean on your brilliant intellect, not to lean on your incredible education, not to lean on your debating skills. I've taught you over and over again to lean on me and not on yourself, and now I'm about to take you a step further. Paul, when you're physically feeling weak, that's when I'm the strongest. Well, I don't want that lesson. I want to be healed. Well, that's the way it is because you see, Paul, your character and your faith are more important to me than your comfort. Well, doesn't God want me comfortable? Yeah, but He wants you like Jesus more than that. Pastor, this this is too deep for a Sunday morning. Well, it's where you're living. I might as well preach it. It's where you are. I might as well say it. We might as well talk about it. When he got this word from God, my grace is sufficient for you. And in, my, and, and in your weakness, I am the strongest that I will ever be. That word lifted him up and his spiritual walk leaped to another level. He said, wow. And he said, Lord, I embrace what you're saying to me. So then he wrote, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. So the power of Christ can work through me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I don't feel I can take another step, he takes it for me. When I don't feel I can do another thing, he does it for me. When I don't feel I can preach another word, he anoints me one more time. Listen, there is within you a power, a might, an ability, an enabling in his Holy Ghost. And The weaker we feel, the more unable we feel, the more powerful he comes through. You know, Paul gets this word, and how many millions of saints, think about it, through 21 centuries of Christianity, who were between a rock and a hard place, who 
were weak, who were afflicted, who were down, who didn't feel they could take another step. How many have opened up 2 Corinthians and read that and been lifted up and encouraged and been able to move down the road because of the word that Paul got from God in the middle of his problem? And he's got a word for you. One time, when I graduated college with my bachelor's degree, I just knew the whole world was going to open up to me. Billy Graham, part two, here I come. I put together a letter of recommendation for a bunch of big churches and had some big names sign it, sent it off, big stack of them. Not one response. I said, it got stuck in the mail. Something's wrong in the mail. But no, God was holding me still. Boy, did I get down. I said, Kathy, I don't understand. I'm young. Um, I've graduated college. I want to preach with all my heart. I'm ready to take the world. The world's going to hell in a handcart. Preachers are needed. And God has me sitting here. I don't get it. And it made it worse. At least, not what I expected. I'm selling mace in the daytime. And I'm on a ladder painting office complexes at night. Devil hopped on my shoulder sitting on that ladder. Said, look at you. You've served the Lord and preached all these years. You worked your way through college. And now look what he's done. He's got you on a ladder painting office complexes. You're not called. You fool. You shouldn't have followed him. Look what he's done with you. Nothing. Look at you. Finally had to jump off the ladder and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. I'm glad nobody was around. Because I did. I jumped off that ladder. In the name of Jesus, get out of here, devil. Talking to me. But watch this. I went home one day. Down. I'm sitting in a rocking chair. We were babysitting. A daughter, the, the girl of some friends of ours who had Down syndrome. She's nine years old. Down syndrome, mentally challenged for the rest of her life. I'm sitting in this rocking chair. I'm so down and and discontent, I guess God couldn't talk to me real good. This little girl came over, got in my lap, grabbed my chin, pulled me, looked right in her face. It's okay, Jeff. God is with you. so convicted me it'll be okay nine-year-old down syndrome i thought god has a word for you in your valley he has a word for you and and if you don't get the word from if you don't say what are you trying to teach me you're missing the whole thing we need to learn so what i did was i said okay i'm i'm Selling mace in the daytime. I'm painting office complex at night. Living in what was affectionately called the Rocha Villa. The apartments we were in, the Rocha Villa. Here we were, and I said, you know what? God is good, I'm going to trust Him. He is good, I'm going to trust Him. God is good, I'm just going to trust Him. I'm going to praise Him, I'm going to thank Him, I'm going to bless Him. Though I don't see anything out there that is encouraging me, God is good and I'm going to trust Him. He is good and I'm just going to trust Him and I'm going to praise Him. And I realize something. God has given you everything you need for your present peace and joy. 
God has given you everything you need for your present peace and joy. Everything out here does not have to change for you to be content in here. He's given you everything you need. You know why? Because you have Him. You say, Pastor, I praise God. I don't have anything to praise God for. Let me ask you, are you saved? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Were you once blind, but now you see? Dead, but now you're alive? Lost, but now you're found? Has that happened to you? Then you've got all you need to start praising God with all of your heart. Because you've got more than a lot of billionaires have. You ought to just get up and say, well, if there's nothing out here, I can thank God that one day grace came knocking on my door and I received Jesus into my heart. And when I did, he gave me a brand new nature, a destiny. I've been justified, sanctified, glorified. I'm heaven bound. Thank God for what he has done for me. Start right there. I'm going to say it again because some of you don't believe me. God's given you everything you need right now for your present peace and joy. Let me read to you what the Bible says, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? How? How can I be? If I'm struggling, just paying hand to mouth, bill to bill, living from one paycheck to the other, how in the world can I be content? Because he said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. For every lack in our life, he pulls in the slack. If there's lack He pulls in the slack. And He becomes for you what you don't have in the natural. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you hear that? God richly provides for you everything for your enjoyment. And it's not sinful joy. So he's there and he's providing for you. Look around you. He's in your life. He's speaking to you. He's working that which is good in his sight. He who has begun a good work is going to finish it. Your times are in his hand. Yea, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he falls, he will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have, seen, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, said David, nor his seed begging bread. He is with you. He's upon you. He's in you. He's around you. He's above you. He's below you. Second Corinthians 12, 9, once again, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Yes, you're hurting, and yes, you've got this affliction, but my grace is sufficient. Philippians 4, 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned in whatever condition my life is in to be content. Now, notice, he learned it. He didn't say contentment dropped on me like a gift. He said, I've been in jail. I've been beaten. I've been lied about. I've been betrayed. I've had the whole church walk out on me. I've been turned against. I've been slandered. I've been ridiculed. My back is a road map of the sufferings of Christ. I've been whipped 39 or 40 lashes, save one, four times. 156 whips across his back. 
I've had people love me and leave me. He said, but, but I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma. I'm kidding. (laughs) Midwest, Northeast. I've learned. I've learned how to do it. How in the world are you content? Well, it's like I do in rush hour traffic, which is my most discontented time in all of life. I avoid it every chance I get. When I'm in rush hour traffic, it used to just drive me nuts. I went all through, how could the city fathers not plan better than this? I went all through getting mad at the drivers that pull in front of me that I let them in and then they won't let me in. The ones that are riding my tail and stopping in front of me, not going fast enough, going too fast. I'd get out of there, I'd lose my religion. I'd get in the car full of the Holy Spirit and get out in the flesh. (laughs) Anybody understand what I'm saying? Am I alone? (laughs) Oh, gosh. But here's what I started doing. I'm not saying I do it perfect, but here's just an example. I can either sit there and get mad, get in the flesh, or I can learn contentment. God is in charge of my life. He's providential. He's sovereign. I'm in that car on that highway by the sovereignty of God. I'm going where he wants me to go in God's plan for my life. So he knew I'd be in that traffic. Here's what I've learned to do. Lord, I praise you. I worship you. Not for this, but in this. And I'm just going to sit here, even if it's totally stopped like it was two days ago at 2.33 in the afternoon. (laughs) Totally stopped. Um, I've just started saying, Lord, I just praise you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to get my eyes on you. I'm going to sit back. I'm not going to get uptight. I'm just going to relax, and I'm going to be content. And I've learned that when you thank God and worship God and yield to his providential sovereignty, contentment comes in and here's what i promise you in closing isn't it funny that when we get content things out here start changing and isn't it funny how until you get content they don't budge or they even get worse why because he's trying to teach you He's in charge of those cars. He's in charge of everything in your life. So, it's funny when you just kick back and say, okay, I'm just going to praise you, and I give all of this to you. Oh, blessed contentment. Before long, these things start changing. That's what he was waiting for. Practice contentment. I'm not saying it's easy, but you don't have any options. Practice contentment. Can you stand with me today? Now I want you to say something with me in closing. Say with me, when I'm content, God can speak to me. When I'm content, it's better for my health. When I'm content... God can act in my life. That's a fact. So I want to pray with you today. I want to pray that we can all learn to be content like Paul did. Would you bow with me in prayer?
Lord, we need to be content because in that contentment, we're able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, this is the way to walk in it. When we're content, you can speak to us and say, this is what I'm trying to teach you. When we're content, it releases the hands of God to move in our life. So I pray, Lord, help us to practice the keys to contentment and walk in the power of that contentment, the joy of that contentment. Now, right now with our heads bowed, I want you, I'm doing it too. We're going to do this together. I want you to give to the Lord those areas in your life where you're just not content. The Lord, I'm just going to trust you. Help me to practice the key of contentment. It's a relationship. It's a job. It's a location. It's something. Can you turn it over to the Lord? Lord, I trust you, your sovereignty, and your goodness. Give the Lord a hand.